Uh, good morning. I'll say my good morning as well. And I also get to say Merry Christmas. Uh, I love Christmas. I think it's the best season, uh, by far my favorite. And I know that some of you may tend to think that we have uh, four seasons, uh, summer, fall, winter, spring, but that's actually not true. We just have Christmas and we have waiting for Christmas. So I'm glad that Christmas has come. I actually started November 1st, but that's a different, uh, that's a different point. Uh, but what a time, what a time this is to celebrate with friends and family, uh, to play out in the snow if we ever get any, uh, and most importantly, to ponder the mystery of the king of the universe born as a baby in the town of Bethlehem. I'd like to take just a few minutes before we read our sermon text uh, to preview a little bit of our Advent season uh, and the text that we'll cover for the next few weeks. Uh, we have the joy of walking through the beginning and the birth years of Jesus. We've spent the last few weeks looking forward to this as a church, the anticipating the coming Messiah, and how fitting it is that we get to continue our story seeing the birth of Jesus while all around us we're surrounded by the wonder and the beauty of the Christmas season, a beauty that's meant to reflect the wonder and the beauty of our Savior. And Luke is going to show us as we walk through Luke 2, uh, God's fulfillment of all of his promises and that they will be far greater than we could have imagined. That this salvation would reach further and last longer. The angels will proclaim over Jesus good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just some of the people, not just the Israelite people, but all the people. All people are invited to come to Jesus and find the only true joy that can satisfy the soul. And whether that joy is already pulsing in your heart this morning, or whether that joy is the furthest thing from your reality right now, I pray that the wonder of the Christmas season might fill our hearts afresh with the joy of our Savior. As we enter our text this morning, and as is our pattern, let's go ahead and open God's word together and read it before we pray and see what the Lord has for us. We'll be in Luke 2 this morning. I encourage you to turn there. Luke 2, 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, someone would be more than willing to bring one to you. And if you don't have one at home, you're more than welcome to take that with you. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Let's read God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, what a blessing it is to open your word and know that through it you speak to us. You tell of your glory and your wonder. You tell of the mysteries of your ways and the unexpected stories of your world. May we have fresh eyes to see, clear minds to listen, and open hearts to receive your word. May our faith increase as we see your word fulfilled in the birth of your son. I need grace to speak, Lord, and we need grace to listen. Would you be with us this morning? Pray this in your name. Amen. Church, listen to the promises of the Lord. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established, established forever. Or as we've already read this morning in Isaiah 9, 7, that the throne of David would have no end. And we saw that the promises of this continuing king or this coming king continued in Luke chapter 1. We saw the song of Mary that speaks of the strength and the might of this king. Or in Zechariah's prophecy, says that the horn of salvation has been raised up, that we should be saved from our enemies. These are just a few of the, the promises of the Lord in his word. The promises and expectations, the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And therefore also the hopes of God's people for their savior. I don't know if we can truly comprehend the expectations and, and the longings that the people of Israel would have had for this king. All these promises are at the forefront of their minds during the days of Mary and Joseph. The prayers that they prayed, the, th the songs that they sang like we saw in Mary, expectations and the sacrifices that they offered, the laws and the rituals that they followed, their whole lives built around the belief that the holy God would rescue them from the affliction that they suffered and would deliver them. That God would do what he had done many times as we read about in the Old Testament. And that he would do it once again, this time, for the last time. And now here in Luke, after recording the song of Mary and the prophecy of Zechariah, Luke announces that the promises have been fulfilled. In this humble birth of his son, that was guided by the hand of God, all these promises would come true. After so much silence, God spoke through the birth of the child named Jesus. And so we're going to walk through our text this morning, Luke 2, 1 through 7, in two main sections. First section, verses 1 through 5, will be the fulfilled birth. And in verses 6 through 7, we'll see the unexpected birth the fulfilled birth and the unexpected birth. And in all this, we'll see that God fulfills his promises by guiding history often in unexpected ways. Let's start with that first point, the fulfilled birth in verses one through five. You may have noticed at this point in the book of Luke that we have a big problem on our hands. You see, we know that Mary is pregnant with Jesus, 
We know that she was with her cousin Elizabeth. She stayed with Elizabeth for about three months before returning home. And we know that John has been born, which means that Jesus' birth is approaching fast. But what we don't know yet is how our big problem will be solved. Some would say it might not even be that big of a deal, uh, but I would, I would disagree. I would say that the very nature and the very character are of God are on the line. You see, because God cannot be a liar, and therefore all of his promises, all of them must come true. Turn back with me to Luke 1.26 for just a moment and see if you notice our problem. Luke 1.26, starting there, says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went on to say that this child would be the son of God, David's heir, the fulfillment of all of the great promises. And we're going to see Jesus fulfill hundreds of promises throughout his lifetime. But here at his birth, there's one that seems to have been left out. Micah 5, verse 2, which says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old and of ancient of days. So the Messiah is not to come from Nazareth in Galilee. He's to come from Bethlehem. And this expe expectation we see in Jesus' day uh, in his ministry. In John 7, some came up to him and said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, where the village of David is? Which means that if God's promises to Mary and Joseph are actually true, they are living in the wrong place. They're living in the wrong town. How will the Lord's promises be fulfilled? All of them, not leaving a single one out. And then chapter 2 begins like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. You see, Luke in here in this passage, he, he gives us more than just that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Right? So God fulfilling his promises. He could have just simply said that. But he also makes sure we know how and because of whom Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. Let's start with the how, this worldwide registration, whether it was for tax purposes or military purposes or just census data, all the world, that is all the known world or the whole Roman Empire at that time, was told or really commanded to be registered. And for the Jewish nation, that was carried out by having each return to his hometown, the town of his lineage to be registered. And then how about the who? It says Caesar Augustus. Right? This would be the ruler of Rome at the time of Jesus' birth. He's given this title of Augustus, which means something like supreme or majestic one. 
It was actually a little bit more than just a title. It was a declaration of his divinity, of his authority, him claiming to be a god. Housed in the British Museum, there's an inscription of Caesar Augustus from this time. And I'll just read just a small part of it to get the flavor of what he was viewed as. It says, the eternal nature granted us as a supreme benefit for our happiness and welfare, Caesar Augustus, Zeus paternal and savior of the whole human race. All mankind is filled with glad hopes for the future. He's not just a ruler, but the ruler. Not just a king in the line of kings, but the king, the savior of all people who claim to be a god. And what a contrast Luke is setting up for us between this so-called king god and the true god and the true king that we're about to meet. But let's consider this registration for just a moment. In 2010, the U.S. census took about four or five months to complete. Costed way more than you want to know. Uh, and that's with a massive postal system designed to handle a national census. Now go back about 2,000 years and just imagine the logistical planning it would have taken to register the entire Roman Empire. Probably not just months, probably years. Who knows how long it was from the time that the order was given in Rome to when Joseph's name was written down in Bethlehem. But that's the true wonder of these verses. It's not an accident. It's not a happenstance that at just the right time, Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem. Or that Caesar, this mighty king, able to do anything he wanted just by chance, brought about the fulfillment of God's promise in Micah 5 by bringing Mary to Bethlehem. No, it's not chance. This is a divine plan, a divine story. And our God is in control of all things, and it's good for us to be reminded of it. From the rising of the sun, to the decrees of a king, to the falling of a sparrow, all of it. I'm sure to Mary and Joseph, it probably looked like the Caesar was controlling the world. I'm sure it probably felt like the pagan king was disrupting their lives, sending them on a journey near the time of Jesus' birth. I'm sure they wondered why this was happening. And yet behind and underneath it all was God. God working out his beautifully designed story. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says this, Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think that they were only instruments in the hand of the God of Israel and were only carrying out the eternal purposes of the king of kings. And the question to us then is, is our belief in God big enough? Is your view of God's sovereignty and rule 
big enough to calm your fears over what you might not understand or what doesn't make sense to you? Can God calm your fears over what seems like a crumbling world around us or a culture war that's turned against God? Is God big enough to still be in control when it seems like evil and wickedness reign? Is God big enough when hardships or trials hit your life? Is he big enough when you hear these words after a decade or more of work, your position has been removed? Or when you walk through another dysfunctional, heartbreaking moment in your family, is your trust in God strong enough to face another severe illness or another cancer diagnosis? Is your trust in God's perfect plan deep enough to believe that God might be doing something that we could never imagine? That there is purpose behind God's plan and that we can trust in his good plan. It's a question that begs an answer from each one of us. But I'm thankful that Luke gives us a perfect picture of God's sovereign purposes right here. Rome was bigger and badder, more paganism, more idolatry than we can probably fathom. And yet even over the Augustus of the world, the true king, the sovereign one, proved that he was actually in control. That he fulfilled his purposes above and beyond the will of any earthly king. J.C. Ryle continued that quote saying, A true Christian should never be moved, should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king as a creature who, with all his power, can do nothing but what God allows and nothing which is not carrying out his will. The Lord, through Caesar Augustus, moved the entire world to put his son in a manger at the right time and in the right place. And we see the fulfillment then of God's promise in verses four and five. And just to make sure we don't miss it, Luke just spells it out for us here. Right? The Messiah is to come from the line of David as promised in 2 Samuel 7. Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. The Messiah must be born in Bethlehem as promised in Micah 5. Well, David was from Bethlehem where he was anointed as king. Therefore, Joseph must return to Bethlehem, the hometown of David, to be registered. And Mary, his betrothed wife, would come with. The fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecies being fulfilled as Joseph and pregnant Mary make the hard and uncomfortable journey to Bethlehem. They're probably not thrilled with the requirement to uproot and travel during the time of her pregnancy. And yet, the ordinary couple, in faith, they submit to the Roman decree and make the 80-mile journey from Nazareth 
to Bethlehem. Which brings us then to our second section here, the unexpected birth in verses 6 and 7. A classic and one of my favorite Disney movies when I was younger uh, was Aladdin. And the part I liked most about the Aladdin movie was the scene of Prince Ali. Right? When with one wish, Aladdin was turned into a, a mighty and wealthy prince. And he marches his way into town with a, a parade fit for a king. Horses and elephants and all the luxuries that you could possibly imagine. The entrance of a king-to-be into the world. Appearing out of nowhere and yet on top of it all. And with the many prophecies of the Messiah and much of what we've seen thus far in Luke, we might assume a similar thing. Right from the angel to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne to his father and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And from Mary's song, remember he has brought down the mighty from their thrones or from Zechariah, that we should be saved from our enemies. And now, here's the king. The king David that will save his people. And so if we're reading in Luke, if we're reading along in this story, we might expect this next verse to say something like this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in fine silk blankets and laid him in an olive wood crib made by the finest craftsmen of the world. And placed him in a nursery laden with fine gold and precious stones. That would be fitting. That would seem like a better attempt to honor the one through whom the world was created. Who holds all things together. Who is literally the king of the planet. And yet that's not what we read, is it? It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What? What do you mean there was no place for them in the inn? What do you mean that he was laid in a feeding trough? I thought this was the son of the most high God. I thought this was the root of Jesse, the king of David. The sunrise that visits us from on high. What is this? Who is this? This may be the first picture that we get in the book of Luke that hints at the fact that the expectations of what it will look like when God fulfills his promises might be different than expected. Not that they weren't in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9, Isaiah 53, and more, but different than the expectations of the people. That the salvation and the rescue from enemies that has been hoped for for hundreds of years may be different and more important than the physical sufferings that we endure. That a kingdom that will have no end might not be a kingdom of this world. And in the familiarity of Christmas, 
and maybe in the cuteness of our little manger scenes, we may forget who it is that is laying in that manger. And that him being in that manger is not just an oversight or an oops. If God can move an empire, God could have kept a room open for Jesus. If God can send angels to deliver divine messages, God could have kept a room open for Jesus. If God can bring about not just one, but two miraculous conceptions in John and Jesus, God could have kept a room open for Jesus. If God can keep hundreds of promises throughout history, God could have kept a room open for Jesus. And therefore, we must conclude that God must have had purposes in putting his son in that manger. I believe that this is a God-authored story meant to tell us about and prepare us for the kind of savior and king that Jesus would be. It's not an accident. It's, not intention. it's intentional. The glory of Jesus' birth comes next with a multitude of angels singing his praise, but not here, not in this moment. Here, a mother gives birth to a child, not in the privacy of her own home, but far away, surrounded by animals, dirty, smelly, unfit for the birth of the king. And yet here we see in this story the humility of Jesus. I want to give you three reasons why God may have written the story so that Jesus would enter the world this way to this family in Bethlehem. The first one, number one, because humility is the very nature of the kingdom of God. The first shall be last. Humble yourself before the Lord, then he will exalt you. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is upside down compared to the kingdom of this world. Pomp and power, might and magnificence, these things are given glory and honor, but not so with God's kingdom. The humble are exalted. The poor in spirit gain the kingdom. And so isn't it fitting that the king of this heavenly kingdom didn't come in riches or royalty, in a power, in power, or in a palace, all of which he deserved, but this king came in ultimate humility. I would be horrified if my baby was born this way, and yet it was good enough and it was fitting for my king to be born this way. It's a reminder that often our priorities, the things that we honor and praise, the character traits that we look up to or find inspiring, often would not fit into the kingdom of our humble king. Jesus' humble entrance into the world is a picture of the kingdom of God where humility is first and glory is second. 
And number two, why did God do it this way? Because humility is the very nature of Jesus. This is the one who descended from heaven. When God became man, took on flesh, creator entering into his creation, becoming one with flesh and bones, the very substances that he created out of nothing, a real mind, body, emotions. This is the incarnation of Jesus. And Paul says this in Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the very act of becoming man, Jesus humbled himself. But even in the life of Jesus, his life radiates humility. Did he not humble himself to the care of the needy and the outcasts, the sick and the poor, the sinners and the exiled? Not a, not a drop of arrogance or superiority as he becomes low to lowly. Not claiming the honor and the praise which he rightly deserved, but accepting humiliation and jeering, taunting false accusations. And what does Jesus' humility mean for us? At least two things. First thing, Matthew 11 says that the very heart of Jesus is gentle and lowly. That his posture to his creation and to sinners like you and me is kind and tender, gentle and lowly. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. Jesus' heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. And the second thing that it means for us is that he understands and that he is with us. Jesus says humility as seen in his incarnation and birth and climax in his betrayal and torture and crucifixion, all of it allows the author of Hebrews to say that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We may be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't really understand how difficult life is, how difficult the pursuit of holiness in this world filled with temptation and sin is. And yet, this humble beginning sets the stage for a life that experiences all manner of trials, hardships, and yet through it all, he persisted. He persisted where we might have given in. He remained steadfast further and longer than we can imagine so that he could say with you, I understand and I am with you. And finally, Jesus came as a humble baby because this is the very nature of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For your sake, Paul says, Jesus became poor. His poverty of leaving heaven, humbling himself before the world, and dying a humiliating death on the cross, all of that was done for your sake and for my sake, so that by this poverty, by this humility, you and I might become rich. In Christ, we gain the riches of salvation through Jesus Christ and endless joy in Jesus. By his poverty of the incarnation, he richly blesses you with the joy of the gospel. Which means that your riches are not in material or social. They're not found in the praise of men or found in bank accounts. All of that can pass away. All of that can pass away because if you are in Christ, you still remain abundantly rich. Rich with eternal salvation, joy and satisfaction forever, purchased by the humble king who paid the penalty for your sin. See, our problem is that we exalt ourselves above the king. We claim glory for ourselves that only Jesus deserves. We do this through sin and attempting to do our own thing and by making it all by ourselves. And this sin must be justly punished. And Jesus, the humble king, steps in. He steps in and he pays the penalty for us by dying on the cross, taking that punishment upon himself and giving you instead eternal joy. If you're joining us today and you do not have this type of riches or joy, all Jesus asks you to do is to humble yourself like Jesus did before you. Humble yourself to the reality that each one of us has grasped and strived for the glory and honor that only Jesus deserves. And Jesus says that if we confess that he is Lord and believe that Jesus humbly took our place in judgment, he offers forgiveness and salvation and unending riches of eternal joy forever with the king. If you've never done that, this morning, trusted in Jesus, I invite you to consider doing that this morning. And if you have done that, if you sit here today as a believer and a receiver of Jesus' riches and joy, may we together wonder at the gospel. May we be a church family that wonders at the gospel of Jesus We have been laden with immense riches in the gospel, riches that are too wonderful to comprehend, riches that ought to produce in us a humility and a joy that overflows to the people around us, riches that remind us that there's nowhere else that we'd rather be than with Jesus. Where else would we want to go? Where else could we afford to go? May we be known for May we be people known for rejoicing in 
and sharing the good news of the gospel and the abundant riches that it brings. And in conclusion, Luke began by giving us a picture of an earthly, powerful king, believing that it was by his word and by his decree that the world was governed. But Luke ends by showing us that the true king, he does not need worldly might or praise. He does not need the riches of men. No, the child that laid in the manger is far greater and far mightier. And he can give riches far greater than any earthly king. And so as you enjoy this Christmas season, and as you see the manger scene in your Christmas display, or you see the one that's outside the church as you pass by, would you remember, remember that the little baby that first laid in that manger is the king of kings who by God's guiding hand fulfilled all of the promises of God beyond our expectations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a marvelous God you are. Who else could write a story with so much wonder and awe, majesty and humility? Emmanuel, God with us, a child is born, a king without a crown and a manger for a throne. Open our eyes this Advent season to see our Savior more fully and with greater faith. May we be reminded that your sovereign hand is guiding all things and it's also guiding the trials and the joys of our lives. May our faith rise. May our trust in you grow deeper and more sure. And as we look to the world around us, may we spread the news of Emmanuel, spread the joy of salvation to the weary world. For your joy is for all people. Pray these things in your name. Amen.